Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 20th, 2013. Yeah, we're going to end the week off with the surreal, at least during the first hour, but I have got to steer into some sanity after yesterday's program. Man! Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We've got a problem in the church, and it's a big one. Uh, The problem that we have is that the people who are pastoring uh, within evangelicalism, so many of the leaders, so many of the pastors, pastrixes, which, by the way, the Bible straight up forbids, um, they are not qualified to be teaching God's word. And as a result of it, it's like we've taken junior high kids and created some kind of cult of youth and thrown some of these people into these positions that they are clearly not qualified to be uh, to be doing. And as a result of it, when it's game time, yeah, I'm using a sports analogy here, when it's game time and uh, it's time for them to open their Bible and preach the word, you know what they do with it? They twist it. They absolutely biff it. They don't do anything correctly with it. <clears throat> and as a result of it, the people who are looking to them uh, as their pastors, they're not being discipled. They are not really true Christian disciples. Let, let me go back to the passage that everyone calls the Great Commission. Now, I understand there's a lot of people out there who, who don't like calling it that. That you know that somehow it, you know it, it. They think it causes it to have a focus that it doesn't that it shouldn't have. I, I get that, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Um, what I'm talking about. Let's take a look at Jesus's words, Matthew 28. I'll start at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples. A disciple is a learner. Uh, Make a disciple. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That word all there is going to be super important. All. All that I have commanded you. Not some of what I've commanded, some of what I've taught, some of what I've whatever. 
um, mixed in with your own ideas. No, the the idea is is that a pastor is somebody who should be able to rightly handle God's word. Who, when they you know open up the Bible, and they should be opening it up to begin with, then uh, <clears throat> that's part of the big problem we have today. Is people aren't even opening it up. You know, it's the the Bible shows up as a footnote in the sermon. You can't do a Christian sermon when the Bible's a footnote. You know, you get these out-of-context passages. I mean, you think of Adam Hushka yesterday. I mean, what was that? Yeah, it's... Uh, anyway, they're not doing their jobs. People are not being discipled. This does not bring honor to Christ. Christ's church is not growing, and the people who are sitting under them are not being discipled. And it's probably uh, arguable that they're not even disciples of Jesus. And if they are... It's not because of the preaching that they're sitting under. It's because they're having to do other things in order to, uh, you know, to hear and learn and to observe and believe all that Christ is commanding. You're thinking, well, what is all that Christ has commanded? Is that saying only the red letters? No. Every passage of Scripture ultimately is red letter. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. So the words of Jesus in red in, your, in the gospel texts in your Bible— that's God breathed because there's God in human flesh speaking those words. The Apostle Paul, when he is carried along by the Holy Spirit to pen, you know, the book of Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, you know, Galatians, all of that, those are all red letters too because they are theonoustos, they are God breathed. So you want to know how to believe and observe all that Christ has commanded and taught? It means you need to be in your Bible. And notice that Jesus, he discipled his disciples. The idea here is that a disciple then turns around and disciples another. You remember back to Peter Williams' lecture that I played on Tuesday. And Peter Williams made the point that Christianity is not comparable to a game of telephone, okay, you know, where the message gets distorted. But in reality, Christianity is comparable to karate. Now, back in the day when I was skinny, okay, um, I actually uh, was a student of Taekwondo, not karate, but Taekwondo. And I had uh, been a student of Taekwondo for several years and was nearing uh, becoming a black belt in Taekwondo. And you know what I did? I blew my knee out badly, so badly that I needed surgery if I was to continue. And um, I, I ended up not continuing in Taekwondo and I still have yet to uh, have my knee addressed, uh, you know, with a surgical knife. Um, I don't want to do it because, you know, the, the the recovery time is, you know, several months. And I just don't have the ability to not, uh, you know, use my knee for several months. So I, and plus it's expensive and you, know, you get what I'm saying. So I've elected to just live with it. And now I can tell you uh, about weather changes just by how my knee feels. But that's a different story. But the whole point is that Christianity is a lot like Taekwondo. Okay, there's it's taught from from teacher to student, from teacher to disciple. A disciple then becomes a teacher and disciples others. And we have people who are not even I mean, it, it's, it's questionable as to whether or not they even know what the word disciple means. And yet they're up there, quote, discipling people, but they're not discipling people in the truth. They're discipling them in nonsense, absolute, abject nonsense that has nothing to do with Christianity. And so we got a problem. And one one of the motivations for doing fighting for the faith 
is so that you, the listener, can hear the, hear the contrast, hear the difference. You're going to hear the contrast today, by the way. You're going to hear the contrast um, because the contrast is stark so that by hearing the contrast, you will decide whether or not the church that you attend is a church where the pastor is qualified to teach you, is obeying Christ here and teaching the entire full counsel of the Word of God, is qualified to do so, and as a result of it, you're being discipled properly. You're being focused on Christ and what he's done for you. You're properly understanding law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. You know, the idea here is is that going back to the Taekwondo karate analogy, if you had a <clears> – <throat> listen, nobody learns Taekwondo or karate from somebody who is a yellow belt. And what I mean by that is, you know, yellow belt, that in, you know, in Taekwondo, that's like – you know, really low, right? Um, I think it's the same in karate. Nobody learns Taekwondo from a yellow belt. They always learn Taekwondo or karate from somebody who's, uh, you know, second or third degree black belt. Why? Because a second or third degree black belt is somebody who's really far along and understands the discipline. And what we have now are people going to churches being discipled by somebody who, if they, if you were to translate their understanding of the Bible in just, you know, take it over and translate it into karate, they're no better than a yellow belt. They're not a black belt. They're not qualified to be teaching nobody nothing. Okay. Um, but that's what's happening. But because they're really good marketers, because they, they make people feel good because, oh, you just name all the different excuses. People just absolutely excuse them because they're capable of drawing a crowd. Look how quickly their church is growing. <laughs> yeah, how quickly that church is growing or shrinking doesn't tell you anything about the truth. Not at all. And uh, the proof is always in the pudding. When it's time, you know, when it's game time, again, sports metaphor, when it's game time, the question is, what's being said during the sermon? If what's being said during the sermon isn't pointing you to Christ, isn't driving you deep into God's word, isn't discipling you in all that Christ has commanded and taught, you are not being discipled. You're being deceived. Big difference. All right. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You know, I can only handle about 45 minutes more of craziness before I'm going to lose my mind. So well, that's what we'll do. In hour number one, we will continue with some craziness. I've got a Nicole Crank update. Now, I do not have Nicole Crank update music, but I'm thinking something. If I if you guys can send me uh, ideas for possible future Nicole Crank update music, I'm, you know, I'm interested you know, because somebody said it may be something to do with the electric slide after listening to her Just Dance sermon the other day. Oh, man, what a train wreck that was. But I've got a Nicole Crank update uh, from her blog. I'm going to be reading a blog post of hers entitled, no joke, this is not satire. The name of it is What's in Your Crack? Yeah, no joke. Yeah, to kind of give you the idea of what it is that we're dealing with here. Not only is she not qualified to be a pastrix because she's a woman. I mean, something like this shows that she, you know, she's not qualified to be a pastrix even if she was a man. But uh, and then we have a Heath Mooneyhan update. Now, remember the other day we did our Heath Mooneyhan sermon review where he was browbeating everybody, 
telling them they need to go stop being just fans of Jesus, but need to go to, you know, being fully com- committed followers. And he never preached about Jesus. We didn't learn nothing about Jesus. In fact, that it's kind of a recurring theme I've noticed in Heath Mooningham uh, um, sermons is we don't hear much about Jesus at all. I mean, the guy doesn't know how to preach through a biblical text. And so, you know, but he's telling everybody they need to become more than a fan of Jesus. But the people there who attend his church, they don't know nothing about Jesus. Well, funny enough, um, he has um, a podcast that he does. And uh, during one of the episodes of his podcast, he answered the question. Somebody had sent in an anonymous question and it wasn't me. Somebody had sent in an anonymous question asking him, how come you don't (laughs) how come you just preach life tips and principles and you don't preach about Christ? (laughs) And his answer is, well, interesting. So that we'll do that and then we'll take a break and we come back. We have a um, we have a update from Joyce Meyer and um and we our Joyce Meyer update we're going to be listening to a segment of Joyce Meyer teaching on yeah see if you get makes this any of the, make any of this makes sense to you do not offend yourself make sure don't offend yourself so we got a Joyce Meyer update and that's about all that I'm going to be able to handle and once <laughs> once I can't handle any more of Joyce Meyer the first hour will come to an abrupt end <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I don't care about my time frames today. It's like as soon as I can't handle any more Joyce Meyer, hour number one is done, even if it's 51 minutes. You, you get what I'm saying. And what we'll do is we'll take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to end the week off with another Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. And the name of the sermon is They Became Fools. They Became Fools. He's going to be preaching through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And I think that is an appropriate sermon to end off this particular broadcast week here at Fighting for the Faith. And you're going to hear the law preached lawfully. He's going to just lay it out. And you're also going to hear the gospel. So that's how we're going to... Um, to uh, end our week here at Fighting for the Faith, I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since I don't have any Nicole Crank update music, I know nothing about electric slide music, which I think is probably where, you know, what we're going to get as far as uh, ideas for potential future Nicole Crank update. Uh, I, since I'm going to be reading her blog post, I'll just play our, our standard news music and we'll just dive right into the program proper. Here we go. From the Nicole Crank blog at NicoleCrank.com, the headline reads, What's in your crack? This is not satire, folks. Nicole Crank writes, What's in your crack? It might be more than you think. It's the elusive crack that, that we allow things to slip into that keeps our lives, companies, organizations, churches, or homes from being excellent. So I decided to go crack diving. Thank goodness there wasn't a plumber around. Yep, just went for the cheap joke. Have you ever stopped to examine what you have allowed to slip through the cracks? Are there uh, are there similarities? By looking at the crack fillers, we mine information to stop letting things get in there. When I look at my crack, I notice a few <laughs> a few pointed things. Oh man. Number 1, uh, things that made <laughs> Things that made it into the crack were often things I was not looking forward to doing. Procrastination is a slippery slope straight to Cracksville. 
If you, oh man, if you know that there is a task that you aren't looking forward to, sometimes it's best just to knock it out the first uh, first thing. Then at least you don't have to dread it for for a week before you finally do it or let it slip into the crack. Things in my crack often showed up at a busy time. There was a whole there was a whole different group of things in my crack that didn't get done. I thought I would remember to do them, but got busy or sidetracked before I got them done. Then bam, into the crack they disappeared. Which which leads to the last point. A task list can close your crack. Sometimes I just think my memory is better than it is, so I don't put things on my calendar, schedule purposeful time for them, or add them to a task list. The shortest pencil is better than the longest memory, and a simple note can make you look really competent. Everybody hates to show their crack. Do you have a few ways to share on how we can all improve and stop letting things slip through the crack? <clears throat> yep, there you go. That kind of shows you what Nicole Crank is all about. The uh, th- That's her blog post, What's in Your Crack. Moving along. That's right, it's time for a Heath Mooneyhan update. I'm the Urban Spaceman. This is our um, Heath Mooneyhan update music. Now, you probably all don't know this. I didn't really know this until today. um, That uh, Heath Mooneyhan has a podcast. And I'm not talking about a sermon podcast. The name of his podcast is called Undignified. Undignified. So uh, this is from the Undignified podcast. And uh, Heath Mooneyhan and his co-hosts there, you know, they talk about all things Ignite Church on the Undignified podcast. I think that's appropriate for Heath Mooneyhan, by the way. And so what we're going to be listening to is the tail end of one of the episodes of the Undignified podcast. And listen to his answer to an anonymous question, and it wasn't from me, about why he doesn't preach Christ. Well, let's listen to that portion of the Undignified podcast with Heath Mooneyhan here we go. And you can be part of the, you know, the over 100 people well, already that liked it. Give me a two-minute time limit here. Okay. But go ahead and read that last question. All right. We're going to get, I'm going to start the clock here. Okay, here we go. We're going to answer this one quick. Why do sermons at Ignite often sound like good advice or principles for a better life rather than preaching Christ? Heath Mooneyham, go. Okay, so this was obviously anonymous, right? Yep, anonymous. Because the I don't know if they've ever attended this church. It's <laughs> a good question, right? Yeah, um, I've never attended your church, and I can tell you what you preach because I listen to your sermons online. It, it, unfortunately, it's like torture. And uh, because I listen to your sermons, I know exactly what you preach. And you do not preach Christ, Heath. You preach yourself. You know, that whole fan thing that you preached about, you know, that we reviewed the other day. You didn't tell anybody about Jesus at all. 
You don't know how to do proper exegetical preaching, which is actually pretty simple. You know, all you got to do is, you know, like take a gospel, like, you know, start with Mark. Okay, Mark's kind of the action gospel. Start at chapter 1, verse 1, and work your way through it. Maybe you can get through six or seven verses in one sermon, or maybe 14 in one sermon, and then you stop. And the next week, you pick up where you left off and you tell everybody about Jesus from that text while you're preaching through it. It's really simple, and you don't do that. That's going to be my first thing. Like, what are you talking about good principles for your life? Listen, because uh, how about we talk about the author of good principles for your life? You don't do that, though. God is the one that has given us the way to go. Mm -hmm. And to think that you'd sit back and that, I, for one, or this church would, uh, I mean, if anybody knows me at all, it's like, it's not this health, wealth, prosperity, gospel type preaching thing. No, it's more like the Bible strip mind for life principles for life transformation, which is just as, as bad as the health, wealth, prosperity thing. You don't even understand the distinctions of the different ways in the twist God's word. <clears throat> right. And... It's it's all about repentance and Jesus. Mm-hmm. And no, it's not. And getting your crap straight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, if you understood it's repentance and the forgiveness of sins and getting your your stuff straight is not exactly the message of a Christian preacher. OK, the point of the cross is that we haven't got our stuff straight. And so we need to be forgiven. So the message of Christianity is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 24, that, you know, to go and make disciples of all nations and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. You find this at the tail end of Luke 24. And so, uh, you know, it's not go and proclaim, get your stuff straight. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Who's the one that we have forgiveness of sins in? Christ. Who did the apostles obsess about preaching about? Christ. And Heath Mooneyhan, no, you do not obsess about preaching about Christ. And just telling people to get their stuff straight is not the same as preaching repentance either. And so I don't know where these people get off, but I can tell them where they can get off. It'd be right about now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that was brilliant. And I would encourage them. I'm. My door's open. Come mm-hmm. on in. Let's talk about this. Let's point out some stuff that's obviously, I mean, if you don't tell people what the life that Jesus is going to give them or wants for them is, mm-hmm. I mean, how else? Yeah, the thing is, is you never tell them that life apart from the gospel. The two must go together. Otherwise, you fall into moralism. You preach, yeah, sir or ma'am. I don't know. You know, it's it's turn from your ways. God's ways are better than your ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Of course they are. And the thing is, we all fall short of those ways constantly, which is why we need to hear the cross Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, even for Christians, especially for Christians. And turn from your sin and turn to him. Yeah. No, repent and be forgiven. I'm pretty sure, like, Mm -hmm. all the messages that I've ever preached are online, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, and we've reviewed many of them, and every one of them has fallen short of even this standard that you think you're preaching to, because you're not. I don't know. I guess we can go through this with a fine-tooth comb. (laughs) Yeah, I've done that for (laughs) y'all. Bring all the evidence and present it forward and... Yeah, I just think it's an asinine question. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you do. Um, by the way, if you would like to review the evidence, just go to www.fightingforthefaith.com and in the search bar, type in Heath Mooneyham, 
and uh, you'll see uh, the sermons that we've reviewed of Heath's and the things that we've reviewed of what he said in his sermons, and you'll get the idea as to whether or not he really preaches Christ or not. So it's just one of the craziest things. (sighs) We'll end off this segment of Fighting for the Faith with some more urban spaceman in honor of Heath Mooneyhan. I wake up every morning with a smile upon my face. My natural exuberance spills out all over the place. first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or this uh, any other previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the faith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we will be right back living a life of purpose can't save you you're listening to fighting for the faith You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. presents Church Day Select. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform, but it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, try it on. It's uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith is a surreal experience. Yeah, it's just that way. It's kind of like living in a religious Twilight Zone episode. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, I'm going to throw in a bonus uh, segment here in uh, in hour number one. We've got a um, Roman Catholic Church update. Yeah, that requires me to do this. <clears throat> The story is from the Huffington Post. The headline reads, Francis Cologne, fragrance inspired by Pope's humble personality. (laughs) I don't think it's humble at all for the Pope to be changing God's word and assuring atheists that they don't need to believe in God to go to heaven. That's not being humble. That's the height of arrogance, if you ask me. 
dun, 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 dun. All right, let me go ahead and kill the music here. Yeah, that's our <clears throat> Roman Catholic Church update music. So from the Huffington Post, the story reads, Pope Francis's personality has been encapsulated in fragrance form with the release of a Pope cologne by... Excelsis Fine Fragrances, CEO Frederick Haas, founded the company in 2005 after obtaining a recipe for Pope Pius IX's cologne and has gone on to create other papal scents by Benedictus in 2006 and now Francis. But what does the pontifical scent smell like? Haas told the Christian Post that he tried to evoke Pope Francis, humble and down-to-earth character with cologne, which mainly consists of bergamot and sandalwood. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. I don't know what that smells like. I didn't want to get anything too flashy, Haas explained, so I wanted something subtle and dignified and relatively simple. Now, see, this is the thing. is is that, you know, I, I haven't even thought about this. I mean, the marketing ideas here, are just the potential is outrageous. I mean, I don't want to make a Pope cologne. I'm thinking pirate cologne. It'll, it'll have, like, strong whiffs of B.O., you know? Um, and, um, and gingivitis. So that's, I'm thinking, see, yeah, see a, a pirate cologne, you know, cause you know, they have, you know, pirates have scurvy and, and they don't bathe. So I'm thinking a, a pirate cologne that has strong whiffs of body odor and gingivitis. I think that would just sell like <laughs> Pope cologne because of it. it smells humble. Oh man. All right. Moving along. I got to play this because we're doing a, a Joyce Meyer update. To accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum. Have faith or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate, my last remark, Jonah in the well, Noah in the ark. What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accent. She went to positive, eat limb. Mine ate the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. That's right. That's our uh, new Joyce Meyer update music. Johnny Mercer and the Pied Pipers and Accentuate the Positive. All right. So what we're going to be listening to is a recent, um, how do I define, how do you, it's not really a sermon, but it's a, um, Message. Yeah, Joyce Meyer travels around the country, and then she fills up these large arenas and auditoriums, and then uh, you know, and then turns around and uses these on her uh, on her program. And so, I think she's in Phoenix, Arizona, for this particular one. It looks like she's at one of those mega churches. And uh, so, what we're going to be listening to is her talking about the need to not offend yourself. Although she talks about all kinds of offenses. In the process. So without any further ado, here's Joyce Meyer on not offending yourself. I'm doing a series on the spirit of offense. And I call it the spirit of offense because I believe that honestly and truly that it is an evil spirit. Satan is the instigator. So there, there's an evil spirit out there named offense. <sighs> of offense. When you're offended... 
It's like having a spiritual hangnail. Have you ever had a hangnail and instead of just going and cutting it off and dealing with it, you just keep waiting and waiting and doesn't bother you for a little bit and then you touch it and it's like, ow, you know. Hangnails hurt, don't they? Well, I believe we can get hangnails in our spirit. And the reason why I call it a hangnail is because an offense is different than a full-blown case of bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. You've not gotten into hating anybody. You're just a little bit miffed, just a little bit sour. They just did a little something, and maybe you didn't shut them totally out of your life, but you just got this little thing now that you're just kind of like, hmm. So you have a spiritual hangnail, and you think offense is, a, is an actual demon, okay? And then you get maybe two or three of those, four, five, six, get a whole bunch of them, and it actually begins to affect your walk with God. Mm-hmm. So has your walk with God slowed down? Well, there's a possibility here, but uh, that you know, you, you've got some spiritual hangnails, and those spiritual hangnails are caused by offense, and offense is a demon, demonic spirit come to... Well, slow down your growth in Christ. Oh, man, I'm so glad that uh, Joyce Meyer figured all of this out because nowhere in the Bible does it actually teach this, but she's the one who figured, kind of, kind of cracked the code and is now exposing the works of that evil spirit known as offense. Jesus offended people, and he said that he was the stone that they stumbled over. So I don't know how this works then with your theology. If offense is an evil spirit and Jesus offended people, was Jesus doing evil? The word offense can mean a little rock that people stumble over. It can be a big stone that people stumble over. But the point is, is when we get offended, it causes us to to fall down and stumble and stop making progress. I want you to say with me, when I am offended, I don't make spiritual progress. (laughs) Man, I must not have been growing spiritually for the last five years because I'm constantly offended by all these false teachers and what they say about God and just how they blaspheme him and totally twist his word. I, I've, man, for five years now as, you know, doing fighting for the faith, more than five years, I, you know, I've been totally offended. So I haven't been able to grow spiritually. <laughs> oh, man. See, we need to take care of those things so we can continue to grow in God. And then it comes from a Greek word, scandalon. The word offense comes from a Greek word, scandalon, which means the part of the animal trap that the bait hung on that lured in the victim. So I want you to realize that all these opportunities to be offended are simply the devil trying to draw us into his trap so we do not ever become the people that God wants us to be. Now, this isn't even a coherent teaching because she said that Jesus, you know, he that he offended people. By the way, the uh, Greek word is skandalizo. Okay, and it's, here's, here's what uh, BDAG says. It says it's to cause to be brought to a downfall. The ca- ca- some, a scandal on a, is something, a scandalizo is to cause somebody to sin, okay? To shock through word or action, to give offense, to anger, to shock somebody. This is, you know, so their, their actions were scandalous. It's shocking and gives offense. That's what the word means. All right, we continue, though. I hate to say this, and I don't mean to sound negative, but I think there's probably more angry Christians than there are ones that are totally at peace with everybody. Oh, no, she just gave a negative confession. Her words are creating reality. Now there's a majority of negative Christians out there. Notice she's not even consistent with her own theology. And you know what? Truly, being an angry Christian is an oxymoron. It just doesn't... What I mean by that is it doesn't compute. Christians are supposed to be full of love and forgiveness and mercy and 
you know, not easily offended and always believing the best. Which passage of scripture is she teaching from? Yeah, she's not. You know, uh, to be a Christian is more than to go to church on Sunday and then go home and never change. We need to really believe this stuff and put it to work in our life. Yeah, believe this stuff. Yeah, it's hard to believe something you don't if you don't know what it is. I mean, in order to believe it, you actually have to read it or have it preached to you. But she's not supposed to be a pastrix. And we can be offended about so many different things. You can be offended at God. We're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow along with some other things. Yeah, I'm offended by uh, pastrixes because God's word absolutely forbids that. You can be offended at a store somewhere that didn't treat you right or wouldn't return your money when you bought something from them that didn't work out good. You can be offended at your place of business because you don't think you get treated right. We know that many husbands and wives have offense between them. They have strife between them. You know, the Bible says that when there's a house full of strife, the children end up in rebellion. You know that? Isn't that interesting? Where there's strife. Nice little uh, trivial pursuit factoid, yeah. There's every evil work. It's a progressive evil spirit that just keeps causing more and more and more trouble. I'm a progressive evil spirit. That you can give offerings and God wants to bless you and return it back to you. But I think that even having a house full of strife can affect the return on your giving. Mm, wow. Well, that's quite a theology there, don't you think? God wants to bless you and bless and, and give you a big return on your giving. Notice the word of faith heresy here, you know, sow your seed, right? Um, and, well, maybe one of the reasons why you're not getting a return on your seed offering is because there's a fence in your marriage. No way. Oh, I want the maximum return on my seed offerings. I better do something about this. I believe that we need to realize how important it is that we learn how to take care of these little things and make sure that we dwell in peace. But tonight I want to talk to you about a unique and a particular area of offense, one that you might not think about. But I want to ask you if you are perhaps offending yourself. <laughs> yeah, I told you this is where this was going. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? You say, well, what in the world do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think the, I don't think this is a biblical teaching. I'm not. In fact, I'm highly confident it's not. You don't have the peace that God wants you to have. You don't have the joy that God wants you to have. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about some of the ways that we offend ourselves. I'm sure that I won't hit all of them, but I'm hoping and praying that some of you are going to get a hold of a little something. Yeah, I can't wait to hear this list. First of all, you can offend yourself by not honoring your conscience, which is a God-given organ. It's a function of our spirit man. Your conscience doesn't function in your soul or your body. So I can offend myself if I don't honor my conscience. It's a function of your spirit man. Your spirit is where you get intuition. It's where you receive revelation from God. Your spirit. So my spirit man is where I receive revelation from God. I thought my eyeballs received revelation from God by reading God's word. I thought my ears received revelation from God by hearing God's word, you know, the written word of God. I didn't. Where in the Bible does it talk about my spirit man receiving direct revelation from God? I'm not. I don't recall any of those passages that teach this. It is where you can receive conviction from the Holy Ghost that something is not the way that it should be. Our confirmation that something is exactly the way that it should be. 
And also a function of our spirit is our conscience. And our conscience either approves or disapproves of our actions. Now notice here that at this point she has not opened a Bible. She's not working through a biblical passage that says all of these things. She's just made a series of assertions. These are assertions on her part. Assertions that sound spiritual because she used like words like spirit man and conscience and things like that. But these are assertions without any grounding in God's word. Now, just to say that I've said it, there are people who have an overactive conscience. I had one at one time, and that meant that I felt guilty about everything, including I felt guilty if I didn't feel guilty. When I started getting to the point where God was setting me free, then I actually felt bad that I didn't feel bad anymore. So I grew up in a home of abuse, and I felt guilty about a lot of things. Who is she preaching about? Herself. I was a little kid. So my, my conscience was like wounded, and it wasn't functioning right. And the Word of God is what brings healing to that. As you begin to know the Word, you begin to know what is truly right and what is truly wrong. And your, your conscience works with the Holy Spirit to keep you out of trouble. I thank God that I've got a healthy conscience because it keeps me out of trouble. And you're, it, it's not a matter of saying, I have a guilty conscience. I think it's more of... Don't you think if you really had a really, you know, super sensitive conscience, your conscience would be going, ding, ding, ding. Uh, Joyce, Joyce, this is your conscience speaking. Um, you shouldn't be a pastrix because God's word forbids that. Ding, ding, ding. You're disobeying God. Yeah, so she has a really hyperactive conscience. How come her conscience isn't convicting her of that sin? Knowing, because I don't think God wants us to feel condemned and guilty. I know that he doesn't. The Bible says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If our sins are forgiven, then the guilt of those sins is also removed. So where there's... So there we've got an allusion to the gospel. Forgiveness... There's always no condemnation. But we still have this conscience that walks us through life. I know when I'm talking about something I shouldn't be talking about. I know when I'm getting ready to spend money on something that's just going to be a waste and it's just, I don't need to do that at all. I know when I'm behaving in a way that I shouldn't behave. I know the moment that I become a little bit of a smart aleck with my husband. It does. I don't, I don't need an angel to come and preach a three-part series to me. I've got it on the inside of me. And you have the exact same thing. But here's the problem. The more we ignore our conscience, the better we get at it. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. If God gave us that conscience, then he gave it to us to keep us out of trouble. How much better do you think life would be if we honored the organ, the spiritual organ of conscience? And if our conscience said no, then we say no. And if our conscience says yes, then we say yes. Oh, well, then the world would be a perfect place and we'd be perfect Christians. We'd be sinless. But see, that's the problem. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? You see, we as Christians, we the, the Latin phrase is, we are simul justus et peccator. That means that we are simultaneously justified. That means declared righteous before God and sinners at the same time. So we, while the fact that we are new creations in Christ... We still also have our old sinful flesh that we've inherited from Adam and Eve, 
that we have to contend with for the rest of our days until we either die or Christ returns. And so we still have our sinful flesh to contend with, which means that there isn't a day that goes by where we do not pray in the Lord's Prayer and mean it, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Daily, Christ has taught us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins because daily we go against our conscience. So here she's just saying, now what we really need to do is be hypersensitive to our to our consciences and then what would happen if we just did that? Well, then we wouldn't need Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work. You, you get what I'm saying. We continue. Maybe a person wants you to do something. They want you to go somewhere with them. They want you to do something that you don't have peace about. Your conscience is not approving it. You don't even really have to explain it to them. All you need to say is, I don't have peace about it for me. I'm not responsible for you. I'm not condemning you. You have to be led by God. But for me, that's not what God wants me to do. And I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter if you understand. It doesn't matter if you get mad. I am going to be led by my conscience. Now, this is kind of an important point, too. There's nothing wrong with what she just said. Now, if you want your conscience to actually be in alignment with the will of God regarding what is and isn't sin, teach your conscience what God's will is by diligently studying God's word. And then your conscience is informed by the word of God, which you have hidden in your heart, right? Read, study, mark, memorize God's word. And then your conscience has God's word to cling on to rather than just some, well, I'm getting a download from God in my spirit, man, and I'm getting a gut check. Well, yeah, that could just be, uh, you know, a, a bad burrito from the night before. If you really want your conscience to be properly in sync with the will of God, well, you need to be daily in God's word, reading, marking, inwardly digesting it, thinking on it, memorizing it, singing it, and then your conscience will sit there and go, listen, you can't do that because God's word says this, that, or the other thing. Oh, that conscience becomes a very, very good, powerful thing to help keep us away from all kinds of nasty sins when it's informed with good, in-depth, biblical knowledge. Now, rather than continuing and letting Joyce Meyer continue to wax eloquent with all of her unfounded, unsubstantiated spiritual assertions, which is no way to preach what the will of God is, I'm going to go ahead and pause there. I, I've done. I've had enough craziness for this week. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take our first break. And um, when we come back, we'll, continue, we'll end off with a good Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a fantastic sermon to end the week off. The contrast from what you've been hearing this week, and this couldn't be starker. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. 
This sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We are back. Going to end the week off with a good sermon. As you listen to this sermon in your mind, compare it with the bad sermons we've heard this week, and you'll see the difference between what real expository preaching sounds like as compared to just jawing and jammering about yourself. But let's do this right. Here we go. The 
good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the late Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones from the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. The name of the sermon is entitled, They Became Fools. It's part of his series as he preached through the book of Romans, and he's up to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and this is a fantastic sermon. The guy preaches the law lawfully, and he really cranks up the law really, really well. High view of the law. Tulian Tavidjian told us about this this week, right? But you also hear the gospel. We're in that section that shows how men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and as a result of it, they become fools. This is the effect of sin. And this effect is showing itself in spades, and of all places, the church. Yeah. We have a whole bunch of people who've become fools, suppressed the truth of God, and are preaching nonsense from Christian pulpits or stages or whatever they are today. So, let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. His sermon entitled, They Became Fools. Now we are completing this evening our consideration of this uh, final section of this first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which runs from verse 18 uh, to the end of the chapter. The apostle says that he glories in the gospel and is ready to preach it not only because of its own intrinsic worth and merit, but because... The wrath of God has also been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold the truth in unrighteousness. And we have been seeing that the wrath of God is revealed for these two reasons, because of the character of sin, ungodliness and unrighteousness, but also because men have deliberately held down the truth. God had revealed the truth concerning himself, not the full truth concerning himself, but sufficient to render mankind inexcusable. He had done so in creation. He had done so in providence. He had done so in history. We were considering that last Friday night. But in spite of that, though God had revealed himself, and men is thus without excuse, Man, because of his unrighteousness, because of his sin, had restrained or had resisted, suppressed the truth. And we ended last Friday evening by asking this question, why had he done that? And we found that Paul gives us three answers. First of all, it is man's pride. You remember the phrase in which he puts it, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Man is always anxious to be a philosopher, professing themselves to be wise. That was the first thing, pride. The second thing was wickedness. In other words, it was this unrighteousness, this delight in evil and in sin. And the third thing was that they lost their spiritual sense. Their foolish heart was darkened. They lost their spiritual understanding. Very well. There then is the position at which we've arrived. 
Mankind holds down the truth, suppresses the truth, and that is why man does so. But now we must go on to consider this. How exactly has man done that? Having seen the things in men in sin that makes him do it, how does he do it? And here again the apostle gives us the answer, and they're perfectly plain. Now, let me show you the teaching of this paragraph. I've divided it up into two headings. First of all, he tells us that uh, mankind has suppressed the truth that God has revealed, first of all, in its attitude towards God. Now, these are the phrases. Take verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, that's the first thing. Having this knowledge of God in creation, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, uh, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In spite of that, mankind does not glorify God as God. That just means this, that mankind doesn't praise God doesn't give him his rightful place in its life and in its thought. In other words, man in sin does not live to the glory of God. Man made God for his own glory's sake and in order that men might glorify him. The heavens are telling the glory of God, the whole of creation does, but the very acme of God's creation is man whom he made in his own image. And man, above everything else, was meant to show forth the glory of God. But as the man who wrote the 104th Psalm tells us, it is man alone who doesn't do that. Read that Psalm. It's the most wonderful Psalm on this very theme. He'll show you how everything in creation manifests the glory of God by obeying the law of its nature. Man alone doesn't do so. So he ends by saying, let the sinner be consumed from the earth. The one who was meant to manifest God's glory above everything else is the one who fails. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Their whole attitude towards him is antagonistic. Indeed, as Paul puts it later on in the eighth chapter of this epistle, the natural mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God. Very well, but it doesn't stop at that. Not only do they not glorify him, but he says also, neither were thankful. I needn't stay with these things. We all know what they mean. We've all been so guilty of every one of them. Man doesn't thank God for his mercy, for his goodness, for his kindness and all his dealings with us in providence. We take the sunshine for granted. We are annoyed if we don't get it. We take the rain for granted. How often do we thank God for all these gifts and blessings? Now, if we as Christians fail in this respect, how much more so does the world fail? God sendeth his rain, as our Lord reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, and the sun upon the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. But mankind doesn't realize that it doesn't stop to thank God. Neither were thankful. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. He's the father of mercies. 
And yet people go through the whole of their lives in this world and they never thank him. Neither were thankful. Ignore him completely. That's how they show this attitude of theirs towards God. It's in this way they suppress the truth that has been revealed concerning God. And then there's a most extraordinary statement in verse 28, which is the third way in which mankind does this. Listen. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now I'm interested in the first part of the statement. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. What does that mean? Well, the Revised Standard Version puts it like this. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. But even that's much too weak. What it really means is this. They did not approve of God. Because the word that the Apostle uses is this. It's the word that is used for testing. It was the word that was employed for testing metals, gold and so on. Uh, a lump of material was put on your desk... And the question is, is this gold or is it not? Is it of value or isn't it? They tested it by various tests. That's the word that he used. You apply tests. And what the apostle is saying is this. That mankind, having considered God, having examined him, having tested him, decided to reject him. Like the scientist who, given this lump, says, no, this isn't pure gold. This is an alloy. Throw it away. That's the attitude of mankind towards God. They consider God. They are the judges, you see. And God is a subject for examination. Oh, yes, this is very interesting. Now, let's, uh, let's see about this. Uh, God, oh, yes, you say you believe in God. And so they consider God. They're going to examine God. They're going to test God. And having done so, and in spite of this full knowledge, which God has given in that particular manner, they decide that they're not interested. It's not worth their while to bother any longer about God. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this, remember, 1900 years ago, but you see what a perfect description it is of mankind this evening? How interesting to have a discussion about religion and to talk about God. Should God do this or shouldn't he do that? And what I think about God, they examine God and reject him. They did not like to retain him in their knowledge. What an appalling state. What a terrible condition. That is the state of mankind in sin. They did not think it worth their while to retain God in their knowledge. They deliberately put him on one side. And it is still what man does in sin. And the fourth thing they did is this. The thing that's mentioned in verse 32, the last verse. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. What does that mean? It means this. That they deliberately ignore their knowledge of God's judgment on sin. I needn't stay with this. We touched it last Friday evening. There is in every human being a sense of right and wrong. There is a conscience. There is a feeling that if we do certain things, we are going to be punished. And that we deserve to be punished. But in spite of knowing that, 
Mankind not only does such things, but it rejoices and has pleasure in them that do them. In other words, men not only do these things, they talk about them and they joke about them, they boast about them. One has to sit and listen to it in railway compartments, especially in restaurant cars, I find. Men, actually intelligent men, boasting about their drinking, drinking and things like that, have pleasure in them that do them. Not only make beasts of themselves, but rather like to tell the story and to enjoy it as they tell one another. That's the position. And this is done deliberately. In spite, says the apostle, of what they know. They act in this way and in this manner. Well, now, there it is, if you like, in theory. That is their attitude towards God. But what is it in practice? Well, in practice, he tells us it's this. They not only have put on one side this full knowledge which they have of God. Now, I keep on repeating that word, you notice, because that is the word that Paul uses in verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, now, the word translated knowledge here really means full knowledge. What, what it means is the knowledge that God has given of himself in the revelation. And what he says is, therefore, that having decided that they don't want this full knowledge of God that God has given, they now decide to make their own gods and to worship them. You see, in a sense, they don't want to finish with the idea of God altogether. But they don't want God as he is. They don't want God as he has revealed himself. So what they do now is, they're going to make their own God. Or their own gods. And here the apostle tells us in verses 23 and 25, as to how they have done that. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, what does this mean? Well, you notice how he puts it. They reject the glory of the uncorruptible God. Uncorruptible means this, of course, that there is no element of decay. It's a reference to God's eternity from everlasting to everlasting. It's a, a reference to God's spirituality. It is a reference indeed to God's glorious attributes in all their plenitude and fullness. The immortal God they set on one side. The glorious God they reject. And what do they do? They make gods for themselves. What sort of gods? Well, you've seen photographs of some of the heathen images, haven't you? Some of them look like men, as Paul tells us here. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men. And as has often been pointed out, haven't you noticed how hideous all these images are? These gods in human likeness and in human forms, they're not even decent human beings, as it were. There's something vile and foul and horrible about them. You look at, at these images and you'll see what I mean. Well, some of them they've made in the form of men. But they haven't stopped even at that. 
Some of them they make in the form of birds. Some of them in the form of four-footed beasts. Cows and sheep. They've set these things up as God. Golden calves. And they're still doing that sort of thing. The sacred animal and so on. And even creeping things. Like snakes and lizards and things of that kind. All these things have been turned into gods and they've made their images in these forms. And then having made them, they proceed to worship them. This is a part of the process. This is how men has done all this. But then in verse 25, he puts it in a slightly different form. They change the truth of God, he says, into a lie. What he means is that they have turned what is the truth about God into something that they think is the truth, which is actually not the truth. In other words, it is a lie. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring, if you like, to mythology. All Greek mythology and other mythologies and so on, with their talk about gods, all, that's the thing the apostle has got in his mind here. And in addition to that, superstitions and all the various forms of idolatry. And of course, in doing all this, you see, they have been putting the creature before the creator himself. Now, what mankind has done in sin, therefore, you see, can be put in this form. Man in sin sets on one side the essential glory of God, the real truth about God. He sets aside God's spirituality, his infinity, his, inter his eternity, his majesty, and the fact that God is spirit, that he's immaterial. But they materialize him. They give him a bodily form, an appearance. You see, in doing all this, they're simply denying the truth about God. The whole of mythology, the whole of idolatry, all superstition is nothing but a lie. It is an attempt to reduce the eternal, everlasting, glorious God of heaven into terms that are comprehensible by men and that can be handled by men. That's what the apostle says. Instead of receiving and accepting God's revelation of himself, they substitute their own ideas of God. And having put them up, they bow down to them and worship them. In those olden times, and still in certain parts of the world today, they do it, as I say, literally in making their gods out of wood and stone and precious metals and so on. But in principle, the same thing is being done by philosophy. They substitute their own ideas, and every time they do so, they are detracting from the glory of God. In other words, no image, no picture can ever represent God. It's always a detraction from his glory. And any attempt, therefore, to represent God, as the Ten Commandments tell, tell, tell us, is guilty of this lie about God. You must make no graven image to represent God even. It's always a detraction from him. And the Apostle puts this in these sublime words, in verse 25, which we're looking at. Who changed the truth about God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Have you ever been surprised at this Amen that suddenly comes like this in the middle of a passage? Why do you think the Apostle said Amen at that point? Well, of course, the explanation is simple. It's this. The Apostle thinks in contradistinction to all these images and idols and all these lies about God as he really is. And he pauses in worship and in adoration and in praise. And thereby I think he teaches us a very great lesson. The very name of God should be an object of reverence. You know that the Jews didn't use the name Jehovah. They felt it was too sacred. Somehow or another we've lost it. But the apostle calls us back to it here. The very thought of God in his transcendence, in his majesty and infinity, and in his glory should humble us. We should speak of him with reverence and with godly fear. Amen, says the apostle. In other words, in the midst of his argument, he contemplates God and his silence and as it were forgets his own argument for a moment because you can't speak of God like that. You've got to stop and worship him at the very mention of his name. Very well, let us learn these simple lessons as we pass. We put the creature before the creator. Every time we put any single idea of our own before the revelation of scripture, I feel like repeating that. To put any idea of our own before Scripture is to be guilty of this very thing, of putting the creature before the Creator. Our ideas, rather than what the Bible says, or what God has revealed. Ah, we say, but I don't understand that. I don't quite see how God would be fair if he did this and that. All right. That's what you say. That's what you think. The question is, what is revealed? What does God say about himself? My friends, we are not meant to understand all we read in the scriptures. It's beyond us. Our minds are too small and we are born in sin. We come to this as little children, not to comprehend it all, but to worship and to praise. We receive it. And if you start putting your ideas, your difficulties, your thoughts, your feelings before the scripture, you've already partly become guilty of this Terrible, horrible charge of putting and worshipping the creature before the creator. Let us, I say, therefore always approach the word of God with reverence and with humility. Let us never come to it or read it without praying to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Let us come to learn not to have our own prejudices confirmed or to turn something down. Let us come, I say, with open minds. Let us receive the word, lest in our modern fashion we may be guilty of this very thing with which the apostle charges those people of ancient time. And above all, I say, let us ever as we think of him and talk about him, Remember who he is and what he is. 
We forget that sometimes, don't we? Something's been going wrong. Like that man in the 73rd Psalm, we've been having a hard time. And the ungodly is very prosperous. And we begin to say, why does God? Oh, my dear friend, the next time that thought or feeling arises in your breast, stop for a moment and remember you're thinking and speaking about the uncorruptible God, the Creator who is blessed forever, this glorious being, glorious in His holiness, infinite in His majesty. Let us put our hands upon our mouths and be content to wait until He reveals His purpose to us. How dangerous it is to speak without thinking about God, the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's stop for a moment. God forbid that we should ever be guilty of speaking about God in a manner that is unworthy. However, we must press on. Now that is how mankind has suppressed the truth. The next matter, therefore, we consider is this, the results of doing that. What has all this led to? Again, let me summarize the teaching of the Apostle for you. The first thing he tells us is this, that as a result of all this and doing all this, men have become fools, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. How easy it would be to spend not only the rest of this evening, but many evenings in just expounding that. Men and women in sin, there's only one thing to say about them. They're fools. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And anybody who says there is no God is nothing but a fool. How do we see that? How do we know that? Well, the apostle has just been telling us in the words I've been quoting to you. You see, any man who thinks that he can examine God and having done so can dismiss him, is just saying that he's a fool. May I put that in the form of an illustration? You will hear people saying sometimes that they just see nothing at all in Beethoven's music. But they think jazz is marvelous. Now, they tell me nothing about Beethoven, but they tell me a great deal about themselves. They don't realize it, of course. They think they're being clever, but they're really just telling us all about themselves from the standpoint of a knowledge of music, aren't they? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Yes, and it's not only in this fact that they think that they're capable of assessing God and dismissing him. Look what they worship. Is that wisdom? Is it wisdom to bow down before an idol? Or something in the form of a, a lizard? Or a cow? Or a, a calf? Is that wisdom? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They say they can't believe in God, but they can believe in evolution. 
with all its contradictions and all its monstrosities, they can believe that. They'll swallow that. They say, I can't swallow a miracle. But look what they swallow when they accept the theory of evolution. They can't believe in God, they say. But they seem to believe in astrology, don't they? They don't believe that there's a great God deciding men's fate and determining everything. But they believe the stars do that. Is that wisdom? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They won't worship the God of heaven. They feel that's degrading. They'll worship a human leader. The leader cult. We've seen it in Hitlerism, Mussoliniism, Stalinism, and indeed in other ways which I could mention, but perhaps I'd better not. The tendency almost to deify certain great men, I'm not sure we're not partly guilty of it in this country, as if they were gods and can do no wrong. Leader worship. Is that wisdom? Oh, they think it's very insulting to ask them to bow down before God. And yet they will worship men and women. We read about the so-called fans that people have in various professions. I shall never forget reading about 20 years ago, I suppose by now, a certain famous film star died. And one read in the newspaper that a number of women, when they read that, literally fainted. You remember it? Is that wisdom? They'll stand for hours to see these people. They'll stay up all night. It's insulting to give time to God, but this is all right. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Indeed, there is no question about it that there are many people in the world today who are worshipping animals. They talk to them as if they were human beings. They won't go away without them. They're worried about them. They live for them. And when the animals should die, they're lost. They don't know what to do. I'm not romancing. These things are facts. Professing themselves to be wise, they dismiss the God of heaven, the glorious everlasting being, and this is what they do instead. But come, they're not only fools, they're also foul. Listen to verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves. Oh, the foulness of sin. The uncleanness of it all. The squalor. The way they even dishonor the body that God has given us. But then in verse 26 I read this, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. We needn't go into these things. Alas, unfortunately, we all know more than we should know perhaps about these things. And our modern world is full of them. 
vile affections, horrible perversions, but people are defending them. They're even trying to say there's something marvelous about them. There's something really beautiful. They say it isn't sin. Ah, they say you've been too harsh on all this. It's being defended today. Things which are not convenient, I read here. In verse 28, it means things contrary to nature, violating the law of man's physical being, improper. They're not only fools, but they're foul. And let's be clear about it and use plain language as the apostle does. Life today has become foul. There's no other word to use. Indeed, he goes on to say that it's also become vile and violent and vicious. I'm summarizing verses 29 to 32. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I say it's vile, it's violent, it's vicious. But that is the result, you see, of dismissing God as you and putting your own ideas up. This is the result of not glorifying him as God, nor being thankful to him, but exalting your own wisdom, your own mind and understanding. That's what it leads to. Fools, foul, vile, vile and vicious. And we are seeing it all in this modern world. You see, it doesn't matter whether it happened at the flood or whether it happened at this point nearly 2,000 years ago, or whether it happens now. It's always the same. These things are universal. That's why I don't gallop through the epistle to the Romans. You see, this word is speaking to, to England today, to the whole world at this moment. And we've got to face these things. And we must bring others to see them. Because finally, the apostle tells us here about God's view of it all. And God's judgment on it all. You see the steps and the stages? Because of their pride and their wickedness and their spiritual darkness, that is what they do. And that leads to these results. And what does God say about it all? Well, the apostle answers in three statements. It's the same statement, rarely repeated three times. It's first of all in verse 24. Wherefore? Because of this, God also gave them up. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up. God gave them over. It doesn't matter which, it's the same word. Three times over it's there. The apostle was so anxious that this should be understood that he repeats it, you see. He says it three times over. 
Men are so ready to forget it and to ignore it. The apostle wants them to be perfectly clear about it. When mankind refuses to glorify God as God, when mankind doesn't thank him and praise him and worship him as it ought, and in its cleverness dismisses him, throws him out, What God does is to do exactly the same to mankind. There's a play on words in this 28th verse. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God did not like to retain them, but gave them up, left them to themselves. They abandoned God. God abandoned them. That's what he's saying. So in other words, what we have here is an account of God's judicial abandonment of men in sin. God abandoned them. And you notice he even abandoned them in their minds, which is the most terrifying and terrible thing of all. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in their great brains that they're always talking about, God gave them over to a reprobate a rejected mind, a foolish mind, a mind that's fooling itself constantly and going round and round in circles and really has lost its power of apprehending truth. God has abandoned them to that. So that the tragedy of men in the world today is not only that he's debased in his conduct, he is debased in his mind. He can't think straightly. That's why he tries to justify these vile things and tries to explain them in terms of biology or, or psychology and so on and to say, you know, this isn't sin. This is really something medical and perhaps not even that. Perhaps after all, it's really the height of beauty. Reprobate mind. And when a man's mind has gone like that, there's no hope for him. There's nothing to appeal to. But then you see, the second thing he tells us that God has done is this in verse 27. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly. Then here's the phrase. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meek. If you like, you can put it like this. God abandons men because of his wrong attitude. And the result of God abandoning men is that men behaves in the way that we've been looking at. That's the recompense of their error that is meet and fitting. In other words, it is God who preserves morality in this world. Man in his foolish pride thinks that he can preserve morality without God. They've been preaching that a great deal for the last hundred years. But you see what happens? It always happens. Man cannot preserve morality. When he tries to do so, this is what you get as a result. These perversions and all that we are witnessing in the world today. It is God alone that can preserve morality. And when God withdraws himself, you see what happens. You enter into this vileness and filth and foulness. And that is what they deserve, says Paul. 
that is the recompense that is meet for such creatures. God withdraws his restraining grace and all the foulness and the vileness that is in men as the result of sin is given free scope. It's let loose. And the world becomes a kind of living hell. Very well then, let me make my final comments, which are these. The world as it is this evening is the greatest proof possible of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hurl down the truth in unrighteousness. Our world this very evening with its baffling moral problems, with its incredible moral muddle, with all the loudness and the ugliness and the foulness which is increasing, it's just an absolute proof of what the Apostle says here. It is God's wrath against sin. You can't explain it in any other terms. I defy you to. There is no other explanation. You see, we'd been taught that... Uh, Education and culture and moral lectures and moral societies were going to do it, but they can't do it and they're not doing it. No, no. This is a part of the wrath of God against sin. So the modern world proves itself that the doctrine which it hates above every doctrine, the doctrine of the wrath of God, is actually a fact. Because the wrath of God manifests itself in that way, that God withdraws his restraining grace and abandons men to himself. And the result is what we see. My other comment is this. Hell is just that exaggerated and going on to all eternity. That is hell. Hell is a condition in which life is lived outside God and all the restraint of God's holiness. And that's what it is. All this that you've got described here, exaggerated, still worse, and going on endlessly. In other words, hell is people living to all eternity, the kind of life they're living now, only that it's much more so. That's hell. Can you imagine anything worse? It's men and women without any control at all. Finally abandoned by God. He gave them over. He gives them over eternally. And they're just left to themselves and to manifest all that is in them of this foulness and vileness. I don't know what you feel, my friends, but I feel this as I say these things. Thank God for Romans 1, 16 and 17. In the light of all this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What else could have saved any one of us from such a condition and from such a hell? 
thank God for it. And thank God that he's ever opened our eyes to see it. Ah, yes, but the inevitable corollary. What of the men and women who are still in it? Are we content just to go on enjoying our salvation and our knowledge and our position? All mankind outside Christ comes into this passage. They're not all equally foul, but they don't glorify him as God, and they don't thank him. And they're in the same company, and they'll spend eternity in the same company. The most respectable people, as well as the vilest, they all are in the same group. If we believe these things, we must not only have a great heart of compassion for them, as we see their appalling condition and as we see what awaits them, we must pray God so to manifest this power of his in the gospel. We must so pray, I say, for revival and for reawakening, for the power of the Holy Ghost to open the eyes of men and women ere it be too late. If we really believe this teaching, we will all go from this service tonight determined no longer to live a life of ease and of rest and of enjoyment. We must feel the burden of the souls that are round and about us by the million in this condition. We can't do anything about them. It's no use going to talk merely into reason. It needs the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. It was the only thing that availed in the time of Paul. He didn't preach with enticing words of men's wisdom. He preached in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And nothing else will touch it. They won't listen to anything else. It has no effect finally. But the power of the Holy Ghost can and does and will. Let us plead, let us yearn for God to visit us with revival power. But all who are privileged to preach the gospel and all individual Christians as they talk to men and women may open their eyes to these things but may go on to tell them of the power of God unto salvation, of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ which can make the foulest clean of the blood of Christ his perfect righteousness and obedience with which they can be clothed, that they can be washed, that they can be sanctified, that they can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit of God. Oh, may God imprint these things so deeply upon our minds and hearts that we shall be so burdened and pray God to have mercy and to give yet another opportunity ere it be too late. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come again with humble praise and thanksgiving to thank thee that thou hast opened our eyes to see these things. Our desperate condition and the glory and the fullness and the power of the gospel.
O God, we know not how to thank thee. We are debtors to thy mercy and love. O hear us as we pray for those who are without. For all were still blinded by sin and Satan and are held still in this foul bondage and captivity. God, have mercy upon them. O Lord, we pray and beseech thee, revive thy work. Manifest again the power that was seen here in this city of London 200 years ago in that great evangelical awakening when men corresponding to what we have read of this evening were by the thousands saved and delivered under the preaching of thy servants filled with the Holy Ghost. We know that thou art still the same, that thine arm is not shortened. O God, revive thy work and come in Pentecostal power. And unto thee and unto thee alone shall we give all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. In the name of thy dear Son, our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us now this night until, if it be thy will, we meet again in October. Throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall stand before thee face to face and enter into thine eternal and everlasting glory. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.